Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR community radio station. Just a cheerio to Jason. Missed your call this morning. Uh, the... Uh, Today, we're going to uh, reprise some of the things we didn't get a chance to uh, cover last week because we had a long discussion about uh, what happened down at the web dock. Today, we're going to kick off with uh, Dr. Sarah Abdo. This is a recording given to me by Vivian Langford from the 3CR program Climate Action Show. She's been diligently collecting the speeches at the pro-Palestinian rally being held in Sydney weekly. Uh, This is from January the 27th and uh, this uh, speech is actually quite uh, harrowing so I'm just giving you a warning. We're going to go on to Louise Morris. She is the... uh, oil and gas campaign manager for the Australian Maritime Conservation Society. Uh, They're warning us that there is a deadline, a 26th of February deadline, to send uh, Nompsema uh, community uh, rejection of a uh, permit that's being uh, applied for by CGG uh, to... um, uh, do seismic blasting in the Otway Basin just kilometres off the coast of the Great Ocean Road and in the carving grounds of the endangered southern right whale. Now, uh, the Australian Maritime Conservation Society, AMCS, is ready. It's uh, got its sleeves up and uh, wants to help the community to uh, uh, go through the um, this uh, labyrinthine um, process of putting in uh, submissions to this particular uh, authority to uh, stall and stop this destructive environmental uh, attack uh, of seismic blasting on the Otways Basin. We're going to talk to Louise Morris about this. Uh, We're going to go to the speech that was given by Olivia Ball from the Melbourne City Council at the 182nd anniversary of the hanging of Malboy Heaney and uh, Tanaminoe, the freedom fighters, the first uh, um, people hung, uh, Indigenous people hung at the... uh, what is now the site at the edge of RMIT and the old Melbourne jail. 
Uh, these are uh, the very first um, commemoration of the frontier wars in Australia, right there. Uh, and uh, the interesting thing about this speech by Olivia Bell is that she brings us right to the edge of uh, the um, the rift between uh, white domination, uh, European domination in this land over Indigenous consciousness and reality. Uh, it's a fascinating speech, I found. And if we go on to explore the same theme with, with uh, David Marr, who's written a book called Killing for Country. Uh, this is a very sh- short excerpt from uh, the Australia Institute uh, largest book club, uh, a biggest book club in the whole of Australia, a uh, recent um, edition. You can go to their podcast for the entire piece, but uh, this is on the same theme. And uh, we're going to finish the show with Kirsten, Kirsten O'Connell. She's from the Anti-Poverty Centre, uh, The Cost of Living, Stage 3 Tax Cuts, but it's from the point of view of the majority as opposed to to the uh, ridiculous rich who seem to think that uh, everybody should be spending all their time feathering their nests. Oh, what fools they are. No more whispering in our arms Gonna rise up to break these chains And stop these killing games Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join us on Saturday the 17th of February at midday at the State Library, Swanson Street, Melbourne to mark the 20th anniversary of the death in custody of Redfern teenager TJ Hickey. Honour the memory of TJ and the many deaths in custody families that now number more than 555 since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. No one to date has been held responsible for these deaths. We demand end the practice of police investigating police and immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Come along Saturday 17th of February, midday at the State Library. Ischia Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're going to go to a recording that was given to me by Vivian Langford from the 3CR program Climate Action Show. It's on Monday at 5.30. Great show, uh, of course, podcast. Uh, she has been uh, diligently recording the uh, pro-Palestinian rallies that have been held in Sydney January uh, every Saturday and uh, this one is from uh, last Saturday the 27th of January. Uh, We're hearing from Dr Sarah uh, Abdo. Uh, She's a specialist doctor and uh, she left us with a quote you'll hear, I grieve for this world that used to sing about humanity and human rights. I cannot believe that we are living in the 21st century. She is not alone. Without further ado, I want to introduce our, our, our first speaker, Dr. Sarah Abdo. Dr. Abdo is an Australian-born Palestinian specialist in Southwest Sydney. Please welcome Dr. Sarah. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you all. I have to say it's an extremely overwhelming experience to face you guys at this time 
It's nearly four months, four months of bombardment. And to have a specialist up here speaking to you is not the norm, I don't think. I don't think anything is normal in the last three months. As I thought to myself, what could I possibly say to these people that hasn't already said before? What could we possibly hear that we haven't already heard before? Surely we have seen all the pictures, all the images that we need to see. And I thought to myself, is there something in the water that we have not been drinking, that these people have been drinking, that they are completely blind to a genocide that has been publicly televised for the last three and a half months? So I speak to you today. I wanted to start by actually acknowledging my beloved grandmother. My grandmother was living in Yaffa during the Nakaba. My grandmother, on the 15th of May, 1948, gave birth to my father. For those that know what the 15th of May, 1948 represents, you understand a woman giving birth on that day is like the women giving birth in Gaza now. In fact, now, the women giving birth in Gaza are in a much more difficult circumstances, worse than we've ever seen. Our aunts, our uncles, our grandparents tell us this is the worst we have ever seen in Palestine. This is not something we have ever seen before in the modern world. As a Palestinian, Australian-born specialist, I speak to you. As a mother, I speak to you. As a daughter, I speak to you. How? How have we seen the most horrific targeting of healthcare workers never seen before? Over 400 healthcare workers have been murdered in Gaza. Not to mention how many have been abducted. Where is the outrage? Where is the calling out? Where are our bodies? We have been calling out to our medical bodies, calling out their hypocrisy. They were quick to mention Ukraine, and so they should have, and silence on Gaza. It is suddenly political. 400 healthcare worker lives are political. As a daughter of a Palestinian man, I am ashamed of the humiliation put upon our Palestinian men, the humiliation they have had to endure all this time, the televising of their massacres, the televising of their abductions, their stripping down to their shorts across the whole world. This is a disgusting sight that we have been witness to and we should all be ashamed. Ten children per day, ten children lose one or more limbs in Gaza. Do numbers mean nothing to people? These are children that will have no arms or legs. Where will be the services that will help these children? Ten every day. 20,000 babies have been born into this horror. 20,000 babies that I am sure the majority of which will not survive. Babies that were born 
and then died without even a registration of their birth. Will they be counted? Today when I woke up and I thought, what else could I say? You know, how much worse could it possibly get? How much more unrepresentative could our government be? How much more callous could our government be? To see the headlines, the last screw in the coffin, the last screw in the coffin of the Palestinians that are besieged in Gaza, where our government says nothing about the ICJ ruling, okay, for South Africa, nothing. And they open their mouth and say they will cut off funding to the UN Relief Agency based. Nothing justifies cutting off funding to the last ounce of humanitarian aid there is in Gaza. Completely un-Australian, thank you, exactly. Australia prides itself on international humanitarian law. I am very sorry to say, and I am very humbled by our Indigenous brothers and sisters that we are standing on land that has buried in it ancestors who were slaughtered by the colonial settlers. Do not be fooled and do not be distracted because the bombing will stop. The bombing will stop because there is nothing left to bomb. You have seen the population move from the north to the middle to the south. Then from the tiny little spot in the south of Gaza, in Khan Yunis, where my family still resides. Families that at the beginning of this conflict had hundreds of people living in the same building are now all dispersed, maimed, killed, abducted. In that little spot two days ago, just before the ICJ, you saw them pushing them out to the desert, which was their entire premise. Right at the beginning, they said, we will push them to the desert, and that's what they are doing. So when they do stop the bombing, the genocide will continue because they have set up the environment for ongoing death from starvation, from dehydration, from hypothermia. We are in the middle of summer. They are in the middle of winter, dying of cold and dehydration. It is raining on their tents. They are being flooded. Not only are they dehydrated, not only are they starving, disease is now rancid and taking over their already weakened bodies. What a cruel, dystopian world do we live in! Gaza is the teacher. I will say that again. Gaza is our teacher. I would call the people of Gaza my dear friends on top of the family I know. We have grown to love them and learn from them and learn their steadfastness and their patience. I thank the people of Gaza. I thank them for helping me to further strengthen my own faith and my own resilience. And I thank God all the time because without justice, there is no mercy. And we have a just God and a merciful God at the same time. So I would like to conclude by thanking you all because you represent the humanity that is left in the world. 
know that if there aren't humans like you in the world, what is there left of this world to save? Thank you to the people of Gaza for teaching us and we ask their forgiveness when they witness us on some day in the future, here or in the hereafter, and we ask their forgiveness that we couldn't stop the massacres that have taken place in the 21st century. And I will leave you with a quote from one of the final remaining doctors in Gaza a couple of days ago. It says, I don't grieve anything more than this. I grieve for this world that used to sing about humanity and human rights. I cannot believe that we are in the 21st century. Thank you. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. We need a summer of love We need a summer of love Love like no other Love like no other I lost my friend, I cut my hair and decided I'd start a brand new life when we parted We need a summer of love We need a summer of love A love like no other Love like no other I know I've never been a part of any party But if I had the chance I'd tell you I'm sorry We need a summer of love 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 like no other A gateway to good vibes with each other We need a summer of love Summer of love, love like no other, love like no other. 
Yes, rebear your summer of love. She's right, of course. We do need a summer of love. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. And we've got uh, Louise Morris on the line. G'day, Louise. How are you? Hey, good, thanks. Uh, from the Australian Maritime Conservation Society. Before we get to, on to the meat and potatoes of this conversation, tell my listeners about who the Australian Maritime Conservation Society is. Uh, so the Australian Marine Conservation Society is Australia's foremost ocean conservation organisation. So we've been around for almost 60 years now. So um, we actually cut our teeth and started with a bunch of scientists trying to stop oil drilling on what is now the Great Barrier Reef uh, Marine Park. Back in those days, it wasn't a marine park, and they were working up there and realised there was a bunch of plans to pump oil drills into the Great Barrier Reef, got together, started a campaign and then ended up with an organisation. So we're still active on the marine, well, the Great Barrier Reef, obviously, Ningaloo, um, oil and gas as well and numerous other threatened species issues. Yeah, yeah. And the reason for why we're talking today is because of uh, the um, push by uh, CGG, the transnational geotechnical company, uh, to get a, a permit to be able to uh, do seismic blasting in the Otway Basin, just kilometres off the coast of the Great Ocean Road. Yeah, so CGG for, God, over a year now has been running around various communities across Victoria talking about this seismic blasting proposal they've got, which would impact, if permitted, would impact southern right whale carving grounds off Warrnambool, blue whale feeding grounds, numerous other areas. So on Australia Day, January 26th, you know, let's throw in some extra controversy for that day, they launched their public comment period. <gasps> so from that date, we've got 30 days to make public comment about this environment plan they've put out which is a massive document and actually really hard to navigate. We've been um, pulling our brains out for the past week, creating a submission guide for public and communities to help them navigate what are the environmental impacts, what are the impacts to marine life, what are the impacts to community, and just what are the unknown risks, because these documents are so vague, and basically these documents allow the company to decide what's an acceptable or an unacceptable risk based on how much money they'd have to spend avoiding it. Oh my so we've God. got until till February 23 to get those in. So um, next week we'll have that submission guide up online at the Australian Marine Conservation Society website. So if you just Google marineconservation.org.au next week, you'll find it. Um, or also just so follow us on social media and we'll obviously be putting that out as soon as it's ready to roll. We're just fact-checking a few things. So this is one of three proposals in the Otway Basin. So it's, you know, one, not one, not two, but three. So we've got two seismic blasting proposals, including the one that's now a public comment phase, and a test drilling for gas proposal, which has two areas, one of which also overlaps this area that's CGG, and wanting to do seismic blasting. So the Otway Basin, which is as gorgeous stretch of water between Victoria and Tasmania, 
with Commonwealth marine parks, which are being proposed for seismic blasting and drilling, blue whale habitat, you know, you've got more threatened species you can really point a stick at, has suddenly, after quite a few years of not a lot of exploration, just exploded. And we now have the largest seismic blasting proposal on record globally before the regulator for approval. So this is 45,000 square kilometres of seismic blasting being proposed by this massive joint collaboration between Schlumberger, who've recently rebadged themselves SLB because they've had some bad press, and a mob called TGS. Then we've got the Conoco Phillips one I was just mentioning, test drilling for gas across Tasmanian and Victorian areas, including in marine parks. And then this one that we've got public comments. It's going to be a crazy busy year on this um, area of water. And I think the song that we came into, Intrud is Beautiful, of we've just had multiple community demonstrations, which we were part of down on the west and surf coast of Victoria, really showing a summer of love for our oceans of thousands of people turning out just saying no to these offshore oil and gas projects on our waters and really talking to the need to protect our oceans. We know there's marine heat waves coming, we've got biodiversity issues and you know, let's talk about the reality of gas and climate change. It is more greenhouse intensive than carbon dioxide in the short term that methane gets released. So so many things to do and it's going to be a damn busy year leading up to a federal election as well on this one. Oh, it's just extraordinary, Louise. The um Let's go to some of the nitty-gritty. I mean, what they're doing is uh, uh, blasting everybody with details when in actual fact they have no scientific uh, backing for what they're after. But they're also using this cowboy permit system. Uh, that as long as they can rustle up $8,250, you can go for a special prospecting uh, uh, authority licence. Yeah, these special prospecting authority permits are just crazy. So these two seismic proposals we have in the Otway Basin are both trying to use what we'll just call SBAs because it's a lot of words to jumble into a sentence. But these SPA permits are only used for seismic blasting. They exist out of all these normal processes where you know our oceans are basically handed over to oil and gas projects. And the real clunker with this one is For an SPA project, you've mentioned how ridiculously cheap they are. It's cheaper than a used car, and they last for 180 days. A company applying for them does not have to pass what is known as the fit and proper person test. So what that means is a company doesn't have to prove they've got the financial ability to do the project, the technical ability to do the project, and if they've got any ongoing investigations into previous breaches, it doesn't matter. And that is important because... That mob I mentioned, TGS, SLB, who are planning that 45,000 square kilometre seismic blasting proposal with a special prospecting authority permit, are currently under investigation for breaches in previous seismic blasting in the same area of water because they impacted blue whales. So it's, it's a cowboy permit for cowboy operators and we're asking, we'll say it nicely, we are asking, we're imploring the federal government to abolish these cowboy permits. They are dangerous, they are reckless, and they are designed for the most egregious forms of seismic blasting to happen just off the radar. So we've got an action which, if anyone came to the many, many public events that were held over the western surf coast over January, to Minister King to abolish SPAs and to stop these 
projects going ahead which are applying for them. It's fascinating because uh, they've just announced that the Federal uh, Environment Minister has kiboshed uh, the wind farm uh, element of uh, the landfall uh, element of a wind farm uh, uh, on Western Port Bay because of a threat to uh, wetlands. Do you think it's uh, because this is under the water in the sea that people have this idea that uh, environmental destruction isn't actually happening or something? I think there's a definite element of out of sight, out of mind when we're talking, you know, it's the big blue because it, it's kilometres off the shore. You don't see it. You don't really hear it unless you're out in a boat that is sizable. So I think that's for decades has been an issue with what happens to our oceans, whether it's oil rigs, seismic blasting, and that decision by the minister to protect Ramsar wetlands. And that wetland is listed under an international treaty because it is so important and so significant. And then meanwhile, in the projects we're talking about, we've got Commonwealth marine parks, which are being subject to these seismic blasting and test drilling, which, you know, when you hear marine park, you think, hmm, maybe a little bit of protection, not so much. So we've got the need for these marine parks to actually be protected as marine parks and to stop these oil and gas exploration projects just keeping on banging away out in our oceans. Now, the, uh, I know that uh, with the community uh, actions and in educational programs that have been going on around this issue, that uh, local governments along the, uh, the coast there are all quite um, are behind the community mm. in relation to this. But we know that when there's a commercial interest like this, there's obviously got to be certain political and economic uh, backers. Uh, they don't just come out of the blue. Do you have any idea about who these backers might be? Yeah, money talks, doesn't it? And yeah. props to the, the shires along that western surf coast and also props to uh, the fight for the bike Port Ferry mob and Ben Druitt in particular, who've really led that work to make councils declare their areas, you know, oil and gas free. Where this gets interesting is because we're talking about Commonwealth waters, which sits, you know, five kilometres off, it's outside of that jurisdiction. And, you know, this week we just saw the annual publication of donors to political parties. And once again, uh, the fossil fuel industry, your Woodsides, your Essos, your Exxons, your Santoses, are all, you know, well and truly highly featured as companies giving money to government. And they're not giving money to government just because they like a bit of democracy. They're giving money to government because they know it has influence. So we've got to be real about the fact that the oil and gas sector, and specifically gas when we're talking about this part of the world, is really influential in politics. And that's why we need a strong community and social pushback because at the end of the day, politicians decide on where their votes are going to be. We've got a federal election coming up probably early 2025, and they are suddenly paying a lot more attention, realising that if they keep signing off on these massive seismic blasting proposals, which you know we know they kill krill, it damages lobster, it affects whale behaviour, feeding and breeding, we need those MPs across you know, Karangamide, one and the Melbourne areas to hear loud that... People's votes will be affected by what these politicians allow to happen to our oceans.
Uh, Louise, just give my listeners a heads up again about where they can go to access the information so that they can put submissions in by the 23rd mm. of February. So head along to marineconservation.org.au and if you also um, look for Marine, Australian Marine Conservation Society, it's a long name, I know, on Facebook or Instagram, the minute that thing is live, we'll be putting it out on those channels so that people can follow the link back to read the submission guide. And we've tried to make it as easy as possible. The submission guide has got the information in there and people can also add their own comments as well. So it's something that people can really make their own and take from our science-based reading of it. Yeah, well, you've actually been very successful in the past. Uh, the the last uh, lot of seismic blasting plans, you there were 30,000 submissions to NOPSEMA, which is the uh, rubber stamp organisation put together by the Commonwealth, and 20,000 of those came from AMCS supporters. So more strength to your arm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and thank you to everyone who took action on that. We were so, so happy to see people found that such a useful tool. Well, thanks for talking to us, and we'll keep abreast of what's been going on there uh, as it happens, OK? Thanks for your time. Hi, I'm Ahmed from Fridroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on the 3CR. Yeah. Sick of having to explain myself They wanna know the history, the pain might help They making me wild, need to restrain myself If I were you, I would educate myself Oh no! They want me to hate myself Degrade, dismiss, and erase myself They said Australia and America's not the same I say David Dungay, they don't even know the name That's bullshit, write to your member, tell them what's happening You gotta challenge the white settler narrative Got a lot of books that call us nomadic savages Maybe that's a connection to them attacking us Government thinking up any other solution But truth leads to treaty and revolution Killers acquitted, your silence is killing Give us your platform so your people can listen First came the massacres, then came the mission Then stole the children, then filled the prison No wonder our people do not trust the system Over 400, not one conviction, shame! No justice and no peace They won't charge means it never happens again some of these cops must have been bullied in pe to kill mob that's why kaepernick took a knee donald trump's calling that a lack of respect but what do you call a knee to the back of your neck huh this is as bad as it gets because some of these coppers really don't know how to protect and it's legitimized see they try to minimize genocide and almost twitter fights because the revolution televised go no justice and no peace they won't charge i 
hands to my mother limb and blame me for it Then expect me to be silent and then thank you for it I ain't thankful, they've been killing my people by the masses And I'm fed up to the neck by you right wing fascists I feel anger when my people feel anger, that's connection We're angry for a reason cause our babies need protecting I'm scared to send them out cause their colour is a weapon When they walk through the streets people somehow feel threatened We only want the system to be civilised You televise your point of view then feed the shapes full of lies You bought the divide when you set up all the missions And you still cause divide, killing my people in prison I'm sick of it You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. And we're going to go to a speech that was given by Olivia Ball. She was at the uh, Tanaminawe and Malhoihini uh, Memorial. It's the 182nd uh, year since the two freedom fighters were hung uh, near the... uh, edge of what is now RMIT and the old Melbourne jail. And uh, Olivia Ball is actually from the Melbourne City Council and she gives a really interesting perspective on that edge between Indigenous and uh, European settlement at that time. Look, um, I'm going to count, I'm going to call Councillor, Melbourne City Councillor Olivia Ball up here. Because without the Melbourne City Council, after a, a fair bit of prodding before her time, uh, there's no way we found the money to create the monument. And I don't think we would have sat here for 10 years, you know, occupying the site. So, um, Councillor, I'd like you to come on board and uh, tell us all about it. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Olivia Ball. As Joe said, I'm a councillor at Melbourne City Council uh, and it's a great honour to be here today with you to be part of this important occasion. I was not on council at the time that this occurred, uh, but I pay tribute to those who were involved and to this per- permanent memorial uh, and to all of those on the committee who ensure that we meet every year and to make this a meaningful occasion. Thank you so much. Um, In saying that, I want to convey apologies from Councillor Rohan Leppert, who was uh, involved in the creation of this public artwork. Uh, He uh, normally makes it a priority to be here every year, but unfortunately he couldn't be here today. So he sends his apologies and I know that he is thinking of us at this moment. Of course, we all acknowledge the hundreds of sovereign First Nations who have occupied this continent since forever and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to the traditional owners of the city of Melbourne, the Bunurong Bunwurrung people, and the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people and all of the Kulin nations, 
especially to elders who are here present with us. I acknowledge and pay my best respects. I would also want to acknowledge uh, Auntie Janet in particular uh, for being here with us and uh, Robbie uh, for speaking to us today and um, to Joe, Doug and John uh, who carry the torch for us all on the organising committee. Thank you. I also want to pay uh, tribute to Nawit, uh Auntie Carolyn Briggs who can't be with us today and Tony Burke and all of those who contributed to important history written by Claire Land of Tanaminawait and Morboyhina, which was published by the City of Melbourne in 2014 and is available for you on our website if you'd like to read more. I think this is an occasion where it is important to recount some of that history. It will be very familiar to many of you, but not known to everyone. This story began in, of course, Lutruwita and the Black War that Janet has already talked about. And when the so-called protector of Aborigines brought 15 survivors of the horrors that were the Black War, Palawa people, over here to the mainland in 1839 at what was the most intense period of frontier violence here in Nuttam. Robinson, the Aboriginal protector, so-called, took Tanaminawait with him on an extensive journey through Gundichamara country to the west, specifically to investigate the first recorded massacre in what is now Victoria, which had occurred five or six years prior to the investigation at convincing ground near Portland, where in a dispute over a beached whale, whalers killed somewhere between 60 and 200 Gundichamara people. Immediately upon their return to Naram, Tanaminawait and four others of the Palawa people left Naram and went down to the Dandenong Cape, uh, Western Port area where they joined in resistance activities for some months. In which time two whalers were shot at Cape Patterson in South Gippsland and Truganini, who was then aged about 29 years old, suffered a gunshot wound to her head. It took three military expeditions to capture them with the help of native police. The five were brought to trial in December in 1841 for the murder of those two white whalers. And they were not allowed to give evidence in court 
in their own defence. The three women, Trudnini, Planobina, who was Tanaminawait's partner, and Peter Runa, were charged as accessory to murder, but acquitted on the assumption that they were coerced by the men. They were subsequently sent back to Lutruwita, where they were influential in orchestrating the earliest known Aboriginal petition to the British sovereign in 1846. The jury found the two men guilty, but the jury recommended a merciful sentence. The judge disagreed, saying that he intended to inspire terror as a deterrent further acts of resistance. This old Melbourne jail was under construction at the time on what was then the outskirts of the colonial settlement. And the two men, Tanaminawait and Morbohina, were incarcerated in the city jail in Collins Street. At the time, 42% of the prison population were Aboriginal. As we've heard, um, some five to 6,000 people were present at their execution, somewhere close to where we are standing here today. And as we know, the two men were buried at the old Melbourne Cemetery in unmarked graves which is now covered by the Vic Market. Over 10% of the people buried there were later, when the market was built, were exhumed and reburied either at Melbourne General Cemetery or Faulkner Cemetery. And it's not known whether Tanawait and Morbohina were among those who were moved when the market was built. Wait was reported to have said, and he spoke fluent English, he said, after his death, he would join his father in Van Diemen's Land and hunt kangaroo. And today we remember them. We remember their outstanding courage, their commitment to their courage, their country and their people, their solidarity with the Kulin and Gunditjmara peoples, the ancient and continuing connections between Lutruwita and mainland mobs. And we remember the women who fought alongside them and carried on the fight. Truganini, Pitaruna and Planobina, who was Tanaminawait's widow. We remember and condemn the shameful conduct of white colonisers, the racism, the sexism, the violence, 
in justice, in humanity, the exploitation, the criminalisation and incarceration of Aboriginal peoples from the earliest days. This artwork, it's called Standing By Tanaminawait and Mumboihina. There are engraved plaques here at the foot you can read. It was made in 2016 by Brooke Andrew, a Wiradjuri artist, and Trent Walter. It features six newspaper stands in the colours of both the land rights flag and the Union Jack. Because this was a major news story in its day. And integral to this artwork is this bluestone paving, a Victorian style fence and gate, the indigenous food and medicine plantings all around. Plants from Papaloihena country at Cape Grim and Ayapurna, the Bay of Fires in the north coast of Lutruwita on east and west extremities of the north coast, as well as plants from Kulin country. The artists invite us to educate ourselves about the history and to sit on these tomb-like blocks of bluestone and reflect. In closing, I'm very pleased to say that the City of Melbourne is preparing a submission to the Yurok Justice Commission. We have commissioned an independent historian to open our archives and tell the truth about our history in this place. Melbourne City Council was founded the same year that Tanaminawait and Morboihina were hanged in 1842. The Victorian government, the Victorian colony, was not established until 1851. So as the earliest colonial government in this place, we can assume that the city of Melbourne was responsible for many of the laws and actions which dispossessed Wurundjeri and Bunurong Bunurong people uh, of their ancestral lands. Truth-telling is an obligation on all of us. And this submission to the Europe Justice Commission is something that we can do to document, remember and understand the full history of this place. So thank you for being here and coming back every year Thank you again to the organisers for making it happen. And it's a very great honour to participate. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. This is David Maher, um, Killing for Country. He's written a book called Killing for Country. It's a small piece from the Australia Institute Biggest Book Club. The whole lot will be part of a podcast put out by Australia Institute. Uh, it is just a, a small amount of it. It's an ex excerpt. Uh, and it's, um, it's about a book which explores the involvement of 
people five generations ago in David Marr's family who were part of the native police and took part in the Queensland frontier wars. Um, And it's incredibly topical because of uh, the issues around uh, the Liberal Party, LMP, is uh, jump in there to thinking that uh, it can gain political uh, mileage out of the racism that was reflected in the uh, uh, the no vote for uh, a voice to parliament uh, that's uh, underpinning that sort of approach within the Australian context. Uh, and this is, I found this really fascinating because it touches on a, a variety of things that I wanted to talk about at, in Solidarity Breakfast. And an uncle of mine, my mother's brother, um, as he approached his 90s, um, sort of realised that he knew nothing about his grandmother. And he asked me, because I'm a journalist, if I would dig around and find out something about Maud Ewer, his grandmother, um, which I did. And within about half an hour of starting work, I had come across a picture of her father um, in the uniform of the Queensland Native Police. And um, that was a heart-sinking moment, let me tell you. Um, I quickly went to... I went to I went to um, Wikipedia in the hope that I had misunderstood the nature of the Queensland Native Police, but no, I was spot on. I knew exactly who they were. White officers, black troopers designed to enforce um, dispersals and killings on the frontier. And within about you know an hour or so, out of a mix of embarrassment, shame um, and curiosity, I decided I was going to have to write about this. And that's what I did for the next um, four and a half years. Yeah, I'm not surprised it took you four and a half years. The amount of detail in here and history is just exceptional. So congratulations on what must have been just an absolute uh, kind of enormous effort in the archives, let alone anything else. Um, But I was really curious because you did kick off um, or start the book but, you know, the reason for it was, um, I believe, a photo of, of Reginald, as you mentioned, that you discovered. Yeah. But we actually, you, you start the book, um, uh, you, you start the book with the merchant, Richard Jones, and someone who goes back uh, kind of even further in your family history. So why did you kind of start the book even further back in the past from from where you kind of entered it, I guess? Well, first on research, um uh, my co-worker in all of this was my partner, Sebastian Tesserero. Um, they're my words, but a great deal of the research is his. And um, he is a former lawyer and he has a passion for accuracy that is um, spectacular. Um, and also I had wonderful professional researchers working for us um, in the archives in Sydney and in Brisbane. Um, but what happened as the research deepened was that the nature of the book changed, the book that I had in my mind. I had thought that I would write a book about the squalid adventures of Reginald Ewer and his brother Darcy, who was also an officer in the Queensland Native Police, and follow their time in the force, which was in the middle of the 1860s, 
um, very soon after Queensland broke away from New South Wales and at the most brutal, um, in the most brutal years on the Queensland frontier. But what I found was that the family story, um, if I went back a couple of steps, would actually explain the commercial pressures, the political um, foundations, and the practical reasons why slaughter was let loose um, through the Australian bush. Because these Ewer boys, um, uh, their father, so we go back, their father, they were brought out from the Thameside slums when a rich Sydney merchant and would-be squatter married their sister. Why? Why this 36-year-old merchant married a beautiful 19-year-old girl from the slums in London? It's never been completely clear, um, but he did. And then he looked after the whole family and he brought this tribe um, out to Australia to work, to work on his whaling boats and to work on his property. And so this man, who so little has been written about, yet he was a member of the Legislative Council of New South Wales for roughly 15 years. He was the president of the Bank of New South Wales for about the same period. He was immensely rich. And in his lifetime, he seized or was granted or bought or chiseled over 600,000 acres of land for the sheep that he brought out from Britain. So he allowed me to tell a much wider, deeper story that fascinated me um, because it got into the commerce, the politics, and the brutality of what was going on in the colony of New South Wales. And I tell you, Ebony, I came away with the conclusion that just about everybody in that colony was, was a crook of some kind or other, a crook, a chiseler, a fraud, a deceiver. Um, and uh, it turned into, for those who remember it, an immense... National Times story, the paper I once edited, because this was all about the intersection of crime and government um, that led to, eventually, it leads to the hideous careers on the frontier of the Ewer brothers. Well, I was shocked, I must admit, uh, obviously by the the violence of the book, but just how much you can pretty much draw a straight line from the politics of then to the politics of now. That wasn't necessarily what I was expecting when you started to go into that history. Um, did that come through really clearly for you as you were kind of uncovering that? I was writing the last stages of the book um, during the referendum campaign. And I was hearing and watching on television the same arguments against the Aboriginal people that were used in the 1830s, you know, that were used at the very beginning of dispossession. They were being still used, still serviceable in Australia all those years later. And in particular, two in particular, the big one that those people who spoke up for Aborigines, they were called the, the, friends, of, the friends of the Blacks in those days, um, were city folk, generally prosperous, ignorant of the ways of the bush, and anxious to show off what great humanitarians they were. That's in the 1830s. And the same arguments in 2022, 20, 2023. 
The other big argument, of course, is that all money waste, all money spent on Aboriginal people is wasted. And in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, that was the argument used for giving the Aboriginal people no share whatever of the immense wealth that was being made on their lands. Nothing for education, nothing for support, nothing for housing, nothing, because it would simply be wasted. And, and then, you know, what is it, 200 years later, there we are, um, nearly 200 years later, listening to people saying, oh, all this money has been spent on Aborigines and every penny of it has been wasted, squandered, useless. The same voices, the same argument, and alas, the same results. There's been an argument for 40 or 50 years now that the problem was that we forgot the true history of Australia. I think that's too easy. What happened in Australia was the creation, an amazing creation of a fake history for the country, a fake history that we could be proud of. And that fake history goes something like Cook, convicts, sheep, gold, Eureka stockade, Gallipoli. And it's fake. And I think the thing that we most need to do in Australia at the moment is to understand that we've been fooled by the history, by the official history of this country. And it's and it's happening everywhere. We are dis, we're just we're just um, dismantling this fake, warm official history of the country. Um, and that's going on very, very fully. But the other thing, Ebony, I think we need to keep an eye on is what's happening in New Zealand at the moment, where there, I mean, we hold up, New Zealand is held up as an example to us because of the decision in the 1970s to actually respect and enforce the Treaty of Waitangi. And now politics um, in New Zealand is talking about dismantling the treaty um, apparatus of Waitangi. And we do need to be reminded that um, great reforms, great, um, great changes for the better can be dismantled. Um, we haven't got there yet, but we look across the ditch at New Zealand and they're walking backwards. And this is an alarming thing. We have to learn. We have to learn about the history of the country and understand the po contemporary politics. The last one is called Lucky Country. And uh, while I wrote it, I wrote it because of reconciliation. And I hear a lot of non-Indigenous people say how lucky they are to be brought up in this country. Peace to you too, brother. And so this one is called Lucky Country. It's the last one, okay? Go on.
What did they bring here? What do they speak? Do they speak English? Or do they speak Greek? They bring trouble. They bring guns. Shoot your dead. You're nothing but a bum. They say you're no hooper. You're no good. You're just nothing. You're just a boom. Where can we go? Where can we stay? Stand up and fight. Kneel down and pray. We have to do something. We have to, together. We can't do it alone. We can make it better. So come on, you people. Let's come as one. Bring all your family, children, dad and mom. Bring all your friends. Bring all your relations. This is what we call reconciliation. Thank you very much, and you all have a great afternoon, okay? G'day, this is Richard Franklin. When you've got voice, you've got freedom. Be a little bit free and support 3CR. Make me You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're coming to the last half hour of the program and we're going to go to Kirsten O'Connell. She's from the Anti-Poverty Centre and uh, she wanted to talk about uh, the cost of living, stage three tax cuts and uh, the Albanese government and what it means for people who aren't going to get the tax cuts (laughs) that they're all talking about. You you talk about um, the Albanese government being basically reactive to the cost of living and their strategy being performative and ineffective. Do you want to tell my listeners what do you think is going on here? It's clear that the government is not very happy with its poll numbers and isn't particularly concerned about the actual lives of ordinary people and particularly people in poverty. And to elaborate a bit on that, Um, we've actually now just seen today the announcement about their planned changes to the tax cuts that were due to come in later this year. And what we see from that is the highest income earners will still receive a $4,500 a year tax cut. People below the poverty line will receive a few dollars a week if they're earning above the tax-free threshold, but anyone relying on the job seeker payment um, will not only not receive any help at all, but this change will actually see people on job seeker ending up with an income tax bill at the end of the year, and that's because of perverse outcomes from the way that 
job seeker interacts with our tax system. So I think it's really clear that if the Prime Minister wanted to solve these problems and actually help people survive, that they would have dealt with those issues. But they've ignored everything they've been told by welfare recipients and I think they're just coming up with policy based on what they think the media will like. Yeah, it's like trying to balance um, the rhetoric between uh, the big end of town and the needs of the uh, other uh, people in the community. Yes, it's all a game to them. They don't actually think about those of us who don't have it that easy, what it's like and what's necessary. And I don't just mean welfare recipients, of course. I'm sure many folks listening who don't rely on Centrelink payments but do real jobs, unlike political jobs, are also really struggling. And again, these changes are not even going to be particularly significant for people unless they are really high income earners. Well, that uh, figure of $4,000, over $4,000 as a tax cut, that's um, that's unthinkable for people who are, are um, gliding underneath the Henderson poverty line. That's correct. I mean, it actually works out to about three months of job seeker payments. So we could think of it as people earning $200,000 a year, just getting a, a few months worth of job seeker on top of their fantastic salary for fun. Um, it's certainly hard to swallow. And I know that I'm not the only welfare recipient feeling pretty sick um, today, having just seen these announcements. The um Henderson poverty line is something that some people might not even understand. Do you want to explain that to my listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So the Henderson poverty line is currently about $600 a week, and that puts it $225 above the job seeker payment every week. So people are currently trying to survive on a couple of hundred bucks a week below the poverty line, unless they're on youth allowance in which case they're $275 a week below the poverty line. Because despite the fact that things aren't cheaper if you're 22, for some reason you don't get as much, as much money from Centrelink to try and live. So the Henderson poverty line is actually a very old poverty line and it's not particularly sophisticated. But the reason that we and other advocates, other unemployed advocates, um, call for payments to be immediately and urgently lifted to the Henderson poverty line is as a triage measure. It's the least bad one we have. And we know this because of everything that people told us in 2020 when the Morrison government did actually lift payments to that level. Um, so things that are need to change, for example, the Henderson poverty line was developed in the 60s. So they didn't have mobile phones and computers and things like this. Some things are cheaper. Um, like televisions, but some things are more expensive, like houses. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But of the variety of poverty lines um, that people use, we use this one for now. And we have also called on the government many times to work with us to develop a much more sophisticated measure of poverty that will actually help us understand what it costs for low-income people to live. You also have said that... Um... People, your the anti-poverty network has also pointed out that uh, people have been working very hard to get better outcomes for people uh, in this regard, and we're hoping for much more from this government. That uh, it's actually just people are just now worn out because the changes just haven't come. 
Mm. Um, yes, and also I'll just, uh, the Anti-Poverty Network is wonderful and we do work with them, but we're the Anti-Poverty Centre and we uh, apologise for making that quite confusing um, for folks. So I was actually incredibly cynical when um, this government came to power because of the things that they were saying um, ahead of the election and they were extremely careful in their wording. They used a lot of weasel words that were designed to give the impression that they were benevolent and that they cared about people who are struggling but the actual commitments they made and what was particularly telling was the commitments they refused to make when asked and when pressured by journalists said an awful lot more about what we were to expect. But you're right, a lot of people did feel hope, both people on welfare payments and people who have been really active in advocating for more. And people are demoralised, people are crushed. And despite my incredibly low expectations, I'm really struggling too, and we're not going to stop, but it is an extra um, burden that we're trying to deal with and to overcome on top of the daily just distress and despair of trying to manage impossible budgets on payments that are just unlivable. It's not just uh, the low payments, but it's also a whole range of other things. It's uh, uh, things like the... uh, um, a, a mutual obligations and uh, people being suspended and uh, that sort of stuff that's really causing trouble, isn't it? Absolutely. So um, another particularly sickening figure that we got right at the end of last year um, was the number of payment suspensions. People might um, not be aware that the government conducted an inquiry into the system that is used to impose these Um, penalties, these mutual obligations penalties. And that's if you don't jump through all the right hoops, your payment gets paused or cut completely. And so when in the year that it took them to do this inquiry, despite many previous inquiries, despite the mountains of evidence that advocates like ourselves have provided about the harm the system caused, they took a year. And in that year, well over 2 million payment suspension notices were issued, which Every single one of those payment suspension notices causes distress, throws throws people into a tailspin, requires enormous amounts of admin to resolve. An incredible number of them are reversed and often are due to error from the people who are tasked with policing um, welfare recipients and whose job is to impose these penalties. And so we had in that one year more than... 25% of those suspensions were applied to First Nations people. Um, Obviously, that's an incredibly disproportionate number. And that's reflective of all sorts of um, things that are making it harder for First Nations people to comply with these pointless and punitive activities, as well as racism from the people imposing the penalties. So it's, it's egregious. It is continuing unabated. We have... Um, written to Minister, the Employment Minister, Tony Burke, uh, late in December, asking for an urgent um, pause on this payment suspension activity in the wake of the inquiry report into Workforce Australia. Um, <laughs> he, he doesn't show a lot of interest in doing things that will actually help people, um, but he does do a good job of feigning interest. So we'll wait to see what his response is on that. He hasn't given us a 
clear answer yet, but we do feel like we're being strung along. So, yes, there's not a lot of improvement coming out of the Labor government. Well, it's kind of interesting that this, because the CPSU, the Union for Workers in the Public Service, uh, have been running a campaign wanting um, those jobs uh, services to go back to the government in a form of C CES, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, isn't it? absolutely. And we've been calling for a... Um, voluntary public sector employment service for a long time. Um, it's really excellent to have the support of the CPSU now on that, but it's really important that everyone advocating for this, including the CPU, understands that it does not matter who cuts your payment if you cannot afford to eat and that the mutual obligations, like an unemployment cop having better wages and conditions than the one who used to, it doesn't do much for the person who's getting, who's being made homeless because they couldn't do a CV in the way that the bully at the job agency dictated to them um, or decided to stand up for their rights when they were being lied to. So having a public sector employment service we think is really important. We think that it can only work if there are no penalties being applied to welfare recipients. And another really important thing to make a high quality service is to make it available to everyone who wants help so that you don't have to be a welfare recipient to use this service, that it can be like many other services, like the public health system where anyone who needs it can access it and you have a choice to go to a private provider if you prefer, but it's not this thing that's concentrated and only for the worst of people because that's how we get bad services is when the only ones who access them are the people who no one else cares about. Mm. Yeah, yeah, this, this is about, uh, um, you know, uh, breaking people down into different uh, unequal groups of people, I guess. That's right. We already have a very high quality private sector employment service and it's not the one the government um, forces us to engage with, but it's called, um, most people call them uh, recruitment firms. You know? yeah, that's so right. Recruitment firms, if you're just a person out there in the world who already has a job, you can go to a recruitment firm and say, hey, I would like help getting a job and they'll do that for you and it's a great experience. In my past experience, I've been able to do that. Um, but you're not allowed to do that or, you know, you're not going to be given a lot of support from those types of people if you're long-term unemployed. And instead of the government sort of realising that there is this inherent problem, they've just created a monster that is mimicking that system but in no way actually required to help people and therefore all it does is punish. There was a very interesting um, note about people who have been um, thrown... Uh, had their payments uh, suspended, but had to still do mutual obligation. Is that something yes. you... Yeah, what's that about? Um, because of how complex this, the online systems are that are used by Centrelink, by Services Australia, by Workforce Australia, by Disability Employment Services, by the job agencies themselves, and... Um, by the Department of Employment and the Department of Social Services, there are an awful lot of places where information needs to be entered to make sure that your information is correct. But having a payment um, suspended doesn't actually automatically mean you don't have to do activities because your, your um, requirement is not based on whether you get money in your account. Your requirement is based on whether you are technically on the books for getting that payment, if that makes sense. 
So um, for a person who, for example, has been working for a certain period of time, so their payment might go down to zero, but they technically still are on the job seeker payment, even if they don't get any of it, then they still have activities, right? And if you don't want to do those activities, then you can stop doing them. You won't get a payment. You already weren't getting a payment. But what happens if you get kicked off the system and then obviously a lot of people then fear that their casual work or their short-term work will actually dry up and then they have to go through the process of applying again. And Oh, yeah, that makes complete sense. The other thing that's really interesting uh, and disturbing, I have to say, is that uh, uh, 45% of people... Um, on JobSeeker unemployment payments have a disability from chronic health condition. Now, that sort of gives you the impression that these people have been moved from a previous system, right? Yeah, so um, the Gillard government and, in fact, Jenny Macklin, who was the social services minister in the previous Labor government, um, presided over some catastrophic changes to the disability support pension and how you qualify to get on it and that application process. After those changes were implemented, there was a, a very sharp increase in the number of disabled people and people who are unwell ending up stuck on job seeker payments long term. So since that time, we've seen the average time on the unemployment payment shift from two years to now being up to around five years. That's not a reflection in the changing labour market or the unemployment rate because obviously in that time, those things have fluctuated, but that number has not. That number has steadily increased and has now plateaued at the level where we basically have one in two people on unemployment payments very long term and with a condition that makes it much harder for them to get into the labour market, partly because of their own um, maybe capacity limitations, but also because employers discriminate against people. So it's not just a lack of suitable jobs for people that accommodate their health conditions, but also the fact that people don't want to hire you when they think you're going to be harder to work with yeah. um, hmm. or require support. And so what we're saying is that they reduce their payments bill and they've put all these people into a sense of fear and agitation. Yes, and I myself am on the disability support pension and, and I have to say it is certainly not a payment that is uh, livable either, but everyone who is that I speak to who's on it, we all feel an incredible amount of guilt for the fact that our payment is higher even though it's not um, enough because we know how many people we don't want anyone to be living in poverty, but particularly for people who are disabled or have a chronic health condition, there are additional expenses that come with that. And that makes it even harder to survive a few hundred dollars a week below the poverty line when you then have medication, appointments, um, food and energy costs that may not apply to someone who isn't disabled. Yeah, it's quite cynical too. Um, the uh, 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 If we go back around, um, I'm really interested in um, how this, I just want people to underline the fact that the stage three tax cuts were uh, forecast to cost $377 billion over 10 years and the cost of negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions from 2010 to 2032 is estimated to be 228 billion dollars so we're talking we're not talking 
peanuts when it comes to big end of town welfare, are we? No. And, you know, um, Fiona Katowskis, some people might be familiar with her. She's a cartoonist, made a really great point today. And her point, a very simple one that's really uh, obvious when you think about it, that tax cuts aren't free. Every single tax cut is money being ripped out of the public purse. It's money being taken away from vital services, from things that benefit the entire community, going to individuals so that they can, I suppose, buy more investment properties and extract more rent from those of us who will never be able to buy a home um, and obviously go on their holidays or many of them are buying their yachts and their private jets um, while, you know, my fridge is bare and it, I'm sitting here alongside millions of other people on Centrelink payments in the same situation. Um, it is. It would cost uh, a lot less money for the government to directly support people on the lowest incomes and to make very high income people pay a fair share. And certainly our current highest tax bracket is not what I would call fair. Yesterday I looked up what the top tax bracket top tax rate was when I was born in 1986 and the highest income earners were paying 60 cents at that time, 60 cents in the dollar um, over a certain amount. And the second highest tax bracket was 46 cents in the dollar. Um, so that's kind of, you know, the, the system that we used to have was that it was a really redistributive, redistributive system, a progressive taxation system. And I think people don't realise quite how drastically we have moved away from that and we really now are in a very regressive system that is almost almost a flat tax system um, with everyone at every income bracket paying lower tax rates. And this is just viewed as an innate, unquestionable good without anyone ever wanting to weigh up what the cost of that is. Yeah, well, the report card that you would give um, the uh, uh, to the present Labor government is not a very flattering one. It isn't. I really, there is only one policy, actually, that I could give them more than zero on. And the one thing that they have done is enable more single parents to access the parenting payment and not have mutual obligations. It's a small number of people and there are still well over 100,000 primary carer, single parents on the on payments that are lower than the parenting payment and have mutual obligations requirements. It's a tiny step in the right direction. And for the rest of us, whatever you hear, whatever spin you hear about things like the job seeker increase last year, which was less than our actual costs were going up, um, the Rent assistance increase, I think I got the highest increase that you can get and I think it was $10 a week. Um, the year before that kicked in, my rent had gone up by $100 a week. <laughs> so they're absolutely, it's just obscene actually how much they're willing to try and spin things that they have to know are not meaningful. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I referred to it yesterday as gaslighting, trying to tell poor people that they've helped us when everyone I talk to is saying whatever things they have done, our lives as we are actually experiencing them are worse than they were two years ago. And whether that is this government's fault or macroeconomic factors that were in play before it came to power is irrelevant. This is what's actually happening. And when Scott Morrison resigned yesterday, I was thinking about a lot of the really bad things he did, but all I could actually focus on 
was the fact that he lifted people above the poverty line and took away mutual obligations and the absolute flourishing of the people that I was talking to who experienced those short-term changes During and what COVID. our society would look like. Yes, yes, in 2020. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it is it's possible. really horrific. It's both possible and devastating that they both took it away at the time and that Labor have been too cowardly to say it is possible, we just did it and we want to make sure that Every person who needs support is getting real support, as we have just done. And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. That was Kirsten O'Connell from the Anti-Poverty Centre. Uh, Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with Can't Take Back, Dyson, Stringer and Chloe. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.